All right. Let's start with prayer. Lord, we appreciate the the opportunity to gather tonight. Uh, We look forward to climbing into your word. Lord, we confess and recognize that there's no ordinary Wednesday whenever we're feasting on your word, and we just pray that we appreciate the the gravity of the power and the truth and engaging you in what it means for life and loves and pursuits. And I would just pray that our lives are available and attentive. I pray that you'll guard us from being here physically only, but that uh, we'll be here engaging you and enjoying you, that we'll see your plan in motion, we'll see how you've engaged your people and how your people have responded, and uh, that we will learn the lessons we need to learn, that we'll enjoy the Lord we need to enjoy and uh, that we'll be salty and bright and aromatic as a response. Uh, Lord, we turn this time over to you for your glory. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Okay, <clears throat> tonight we're looking at Genesis chapter 4. So you can go ahead and turn there. Excuse me, chapter 14. We already left 4. We don't need to go back there again. I treated it pretty thoroughly. I think we're going to make it through the whole chapter and uh, we may even be done a little bit early. Uh, we'll have to see. But um, if we are, then we can just have some fellowship time. But we may end up filling it up. I'd like to read the whole chapter through, kind of in keeping with how we normally handle this, and then just come back and low crawl and uh, have a few chunks, bite off a few chunks at a time. <clears throat> in the days of Amraphel, king of Shinar, Arioch, king of Elazar, Keterlomer, or Keterleomer, king of Elam, Tidal, king of Goim. These kings made war with Bera, king of Sodom, Bersha, king of Gomorrah, Shinab, king of Adma, Shemeber, king of Zeboim, and the king of Bela, that is, Zor. And all these, all these joined forces in the valley of Siddim, that is, the Salt Sea. Twelve years they had served Keterleomer, but in the thirteenth year they rebelled. In the fourteenth year, Keterleomer and the kings who were with him came and defeated the Rephaim, the Ashtaroth Karnaim, the Zuzim in Ham, the Emim in Shaveh Kiriatham, and the Horites in their hill country, in the hill country of Seir, as far as El Paran on the border of the wilderness. Then they turned back and came to En Mishpat, that is Kadesh, and defeated all the country of the Amalekites, and also the Amorites who were dwelling in Hazazon Tamar. Then the king of Sodom, the king of Gomorrah, the king of Adma, the king of Zeboim, and the king of Bela, that is, or Bela, that is Zoar, went out, and they joined battle in the valley of Siddim with Ketolaomer, king of Elam, Tidal, king of Goim, Amraphel, king of Shinar, and Arioch, king of Eleazar, four kings against five. Now the valley of Siddim was full of bitumen pits. And as the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah fled, some fell into them, and the rest fled into the hill country. So the enemy took all the possessions of Sodom and Gomorrah and all their provisions and went their way. They also took Lot, the son of Abram's brother, who was dwelling in Sodom and his possessions, and went their way. Then one who had escaped came came and told Abram, the Hebrew, who was living in the oaks of Mamre, the Amorite, brother of Eshcol and of Aner. These were allies of Abram. When Abram heard that his kinsmen had been taken captive, he led forth his trained men born in his house, 318 of of them, and went in pursuit as far as Dan. 
And he divided his forces against them by night, he and his servants, and defeated them and pursued them to Hobah, north of Damascus. Then he brought back all the possessions and all, or and also brought back his kinsman Lot with his possessions and the women and the people. After his return from the de- defeat of Ketolaomer and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet him at the valley of Sheva, that is the king's valley. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God Most High. And he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram by God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And Abram gave him a tenth of everything. And the king of Sodom said to Abram, Give me the persons, but take the goods for yourself. But Abram said to the king of Sodom, I've lifted my hand to the Lord, God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth, that I would not take a thread or sandal strap or anything that's yours, lest you should say, I've made Abram rich. I will take nothing but what the young men have eaten and the share of the men who went with me. Let Aner, Eshol, and Mamre take their share. Okay, let's go back in Locrock. Genesis chapter 14, verse 1. In the days of Amraphel, these names are challenging, so we're, we're going to press on because if my name was in there, I'd want it read. So we're, gonna, we're just going to do that. And it, you'd want your name read too, even if it was funny. In the days of Amraphel, king of Shinar, Arioch, king of Elazar, Ketolaomer, king of Elam, and Tidal, king of Goim, these kings made war with Bera, king of Sodom, Bersha, king of Gomorrah, Shinab, king of Adma, Shemeber, king of Zeboim, and the king of Bela, that is, Zoar. Okay, this is the first recorded war in our Bible. All right, let me kind of break down who's on whose side here. First, you have the eastern kings, and those eastern kings are Amraphel. It, it helped me to kind of write this out to where I could visualize who's on what side and what's going on. I couldn't sort this chapter out until I did that. So even if you just grab a piece of scratch paper and just try and kind of give their name an attempt to where you see what side on, who's on what side. Put these guys on the east. A guy named Amraphel, he's the king of Shinar, which is also where they make really nice what? Coats, yeah, that's where uh, Aiken took the coat. He said, ooh, there's a coat from Shinar, J. Crew. I'm going to take that coat, and, and I'm going to dig a hole in my tent and put it in there. Arioch, uh, that's the king of Eleazar. Ketolaomer is the king of Elam. And Tidal is the king of Goim. Okay, those are the eastern kings. There's four of them. Now there's the... I got some feedback. Do you know what to do with that, Morris? Let me move back. Might be getting caught up in these speakers here. Did, okay, then there's the Dead Sea Kings. There's five of these guys. The first one's named Bera. He's the king of Sodom. You'll, we'll meet him again. There's Bersha, king of Gomorrah. Shinab, king of Adma. Shemeber, king of Zeboim. And this last guy, the king of Bela, we don't really know who he is. We don't know that his name is Zoar. That Zoar, I think, is a, a, just a renaming of Bella. This guy, we just, we're just going to call him Melvin. Okay? We just give him a name, Melvin, king of Bella. Okay? That's who's involved so far. Four kings against five kings. The four kings of the east coming against these five kings of the Jordan Valley. Because we know Sodom and Gomorrah are in the Jordan Rift the Jordan Valley, where Lot moved to. You may remember from our previous studies. Okay, beautiful, lush valley. Okay, 
That's who's involved. Now, the next verse tells us where this is going to take place. And all these joined forces in the valley of Siddim, that is the Salt Sea. Okay, that's where this battle or this war is going to take place. Now, why is it going to happen? That's the next verse. For 12 years they've served, these, these kings of the Jordan River Valley have served Ketolaomer. But in the 13th year they rebelled. Now, it's likely that this guy Ketolaomer had some sort of tariffs or taxes against all these other kings in this whole area, in all of Canaan. And they put up with it for 12 years, and finally they just like, man, I've had it. So 13th year, they have a rebellion. And uh, you'll see it takes them a little bit of time to get their act together, to actually join forces, to mount a physical rebellion. But it's in the 13th year that they say, okay, that's it. That does it. Okay? So, so far we've met who? There's four eastern kings against the five kings of the Jordan River Valley. Then we've met, or we figured out where it's going to take place in the Salt Sea area. Why? Because they're tired of being oppressed. Twelve years. Thirteenth year they raise up. And then in verse 5, we find out what happens. Okay, it continues on in verse 5. In the fourteenth year, Ketolaomer, remember this is the guy that's kind of the main dude of the eastern group of kings. He's also the guy that's been collecting taxes, likely. In the 14th year, Ketolaomer and the kings who were with him, these eastern kings, came and defeated these guys we haven't met yet. <laughs> i got to kind of help you visualize this. These guys are just on the way to the fight. All right, They're, they're just en route. Well, hey, let's whip the Rephaim and the Zuzim and the Emim. It's all these different groups of people that are in the Can- Canaan Valley or Canaan area. Okay, the Rephaim and Ashtoreth Karnaim, Zuzim, the Emim, and the Horites in their hill country, and then the Enmishpat, I know that's, that's another place, to the country of the Amalekites and the Amorites. So there's about five different groups of people. The Ketolaomer and his four other eastern kings, they're on the way to this fight, and they're just out of, almost out of spite just whipping these dudes. Let's just kick their behinds on the way. So then the king of Sodom, the king of Gomorrah, we're in verse 8, the king of Adma, the king of Zeboim, and the king of Bela, that is Zoar, remember we're calling him Melvin, went out and they joined battle in the valley of Siddim. Okay, that's where the fight actually finally takes place, in the Salt Sea Valley. With Ketolaomer, king of Elam, Tidal, king of Goim, Amrapel, king of Shinar, and Ariok, king of Eleazar, that's the, the eastern kings. Four kings against five. Now the valley of Siddam was full of bitumen pits. Bitumen is tar. Okay, I've never seen a tar pit. I've been out to Yellowstone where they have these sulfur pits, these bubbling hot sulfur pits, and this is probably kind of like that. Not a good thing to fall into a tar pit. All right, there's these bitumen pits in the salt valley there, and as the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah fled, some fell into them, and the rest fled to the hill country. Okay, so let me kind of catch you up on the big picture. Ketolaomer and his four other dudes from the east. Okay, these Ketolaomer remembers the guy that's kind of in charge of the whole area. He's been collecting taxes against all these other kings. He's got these other four guys and his three other guys in his hip pocket. These guys rebel over here, and he says, okay, let's go whip them. And let's whip everybody on the way. So they meet up in the Salt Sea, and they fight. And they're so hacked on the way to the Salt Sea that they whip everybody they can find in the Transjordan 
and the South Canaan area. The Rephaim, the Zuzim, the Emim, the Horites, the Amalekites, and the Amazites. Okay? Now, by this time, by the time that they whipped all these dudes, the king of Sodom, the guy named Bera, the guy named Bersha, the king of Gomorrah, Shinad, the king of Adma, and Shamabur, the king of Zeboim, and Melvin, the king of Bela, had their armies together, and they met Chedorlaomer in the valley of Siddim. Well, the fight didn't go well. Okay? We have a pretty good indication that the fight did not go well for specifically for the kings of the Jordan River, River Valley. Those eastern kings rout these guys. Chedorlaomer and his bunch, they rout them. And the evidence is that these guys are so busy running away from the bad guy that they're running into these tar pits. Bloop, bloop. You can just hear them dropping in. All bloop, bloop, bloop. I mean, you know you must be scared if you're not even running the direction that you're going or looking the direction that you're running. And you're looking back and you're dropping in these tar pits. Okay, so the fight didn't go well for Sodom and Gomorrah. And um, some of Bera and Bersha's armies fell into these pits. And then the other kings and their armies fled to the hill country. Okay, that's kind of the big bird's eye picture of what's taking place and kind of the setting for the rest of the story. So the enemy, then in verse 11, so the enemy, that's Chedorlaomer or Chedorlaomer and his Three other kings. Remember the eastern kings. Those are considered the enemy. So the enemy took all the possessions of Sodom and Gomorrah and all their provisions, and they went their way. They also took Lot, the son of Abram's brother, who was dwelling in Sodom, and his possessions, and went their way. Okay, Keterleomer and his crew go to Sodom and Gomorrah, and they take the plunder of war back to their own land in the east. And included with the plunder is who? Lot. Okay, don't lose the ball. Let's watch the football. That's Lot at this point. Lot is going back to Keterleomer's land. He's part of the plunder and everything that he owns. Why they didn't kill him, I don't know. But they grabbed Lot. They kept him alive. They took all his stuff. They took everything that's in Sodom and Gomorrah, all the things that are worth taking, and they head back to the east. Okay, now in verse 13. Then one who had escaped came and told Abram the Hebrew, who was living by the oaks of Mamre the Amorite, the brother of Eshal and of Aner. These were allies of Abram. Todd, not yet. I'll tell you when. Someone escapes and races off to tell Abram what's happened. Okay, that's what's happened. Somebody that was a part of the captured group runs off and says, Oh, man, i got to tell Abram. His nephew's been captured. Now, where's Abram? Look at this passage again I just read. Where? By the oaks at Mamre. This is the last place we saw Abram. And it was the place that we saw Abram before he had his little foray into Egypt too. That he was involved in worship. And he was enjoying the Lord. And that's where we find him right now. He's planted by the oaks at Mamre, the very last place that we saw him. What do you reckon he's been doing there? Worshiping. Why? Why do you say that? Yeah. And, and, what, and what else is there? Look back at chapter 13, verse 18. So Abram moved his tent and came and settled by the oaks of Mamre, where the, where, which are at Hebron, and there he built an altar to the Lord. 
What do you do at an altar? You get your worship on. Abram is back there at the Oaks of Mamre worshiping. Now, where was Lot before he was taken by Ketolaomer? In Sodom. Not near Sodom. Not on the outskirts of town. In Sodom. He moved into the lush Jordan River Valley, and then he moved directly into Sodom. It's hard to know whether it was an immediate move, if he moved right there, or if he kind of inched his way there. But he moved squarely into a place of sin. And the thing that you need to visualize and, and envision here in this picture with, with Lot moving into Sodom and Abram being squarely planted where he was in a place of worship at the Oaks of Mamre, right there next to that altar, is the contrast between these two kinsmen. One is living in the world. This is Abram. Living in the world, but he hasn't become part of the world. And then the contrast with Lot, who's doing everything he can to enjoy everything, the fruits, the world that has to offer. He's moved right into Sodom. And this contrast between these two guys, between Lot, excuse me, Abram, he's still over here, and Lot is going to be important because this contrast between these two guys are going to help you interpret what we're going to see for the rest of the story. Okay? Technical difficulties? Man. All right. Here we go. When Abram heard that his kinsmen had been taken captive, all right, he led forth his trained men, born in his house, 318 of them, and he went in pursuit as far as Dan. And he divided his forces against them by night, he and his servants, and he defeated them and pursued them to Hobah, north of Damascus. Then he brought back all the possessions and also brought back his kinsman Lot with his possessions and the women and the people. All right, we'll understand why we had the Mission Impossible thing here in a minute. It's bad to the bone. I just had no idea that Abram was such a warrior. Okay, Now, here's the question. What would you be tempted to do if you were Abram? Let me give you a little bit of background before you answer that question. Lot has not been the ideal nephew so far. Okay? Whenever Abram and Lot came to Canaan and they kind of had their pick of where to live, Lot got first choice. Abram gave him first choice and Lot took the choice land. He didn't say, no, uncle. Listen, God has given you this promise. Please, you take first choice and I'll take what's ever left. In fact, he took first choice and was unfaithful in even what he chose. He chose walking by sight rather than walking by faith. Now, if Lot had been captured by Ketolaomer, he moved, moved into Sodom, remember? And if he had been captured by Ketolaomer, this king, what would you think? How would you feel if you were Abram? That's exactly what I wrote, verbatim. He made his bed. Exactly. I mean, he made his choice, let him lie in that bed. I mean, it would be very easy to land there. Um, you might think things like, another one bites the dust. You know, sing that song. You might think, well, that's too bad. Too bad for Lot. <laughs> I tried to guide him as best I could, but he went his own way and then it's done. But let's see what he actually does. He turns into 
Ricky Recon, complete with the Mission Impossible music. And he puts together what I call a direct action platoon. In the Marine Corps, we had these platoons that were part of a recon unit that actually went out, and their job was to rescue a POW or someone, some important figure that, was, uh, that needed to be kind of a surgical sort of removal. So Abram puts that together, and he goes into action to do a little search and rescue for his nephew. He leads his, quote, trained men born in his house. Now, what do you think these jokers are trained to do? Cook? Trained to sweep floors? Trained to kick some behind? These guys, I mean, he, there was prior planning on Abram's part. What does this tell you about Abram, that he had a bunch of 300-something trained men in his house? You think? I don't know. I don't know about that. What else does it tell you about Abram? Well prepared for what? Yes, he also knew the setting that he was living in. Now, God told him he was going to have this land. He told him he was going to inherit this land. He didn't tell him how he was going to get it. And you almost have to wonder if he's not preparing these guys to take it by force if necessary. If God says, go get it and take it by force, it's not a surprise for God to do that. He did it with the guys that crossed the Jordan and on into the promised land. They took Jericho and Ai and places like that by force. So you have to wonder if he's training these guys for this. But one thing you need to appreciate about Abram is that he was not a pacifist. He's training people to fight. I mean, I've always had this picture of Abram just kind of being this nice, peaceful old dude. And envisioning this guy at the age of 90 or something like that right here, raising up with his 318 high-speed, low-drag, Ricky Recon Marines going to do a direct action mission, it just blew my mind. He was prepared for war. You can uh, kind of keep your finger in Genesis and look over at Hebrews chapter 7. I also want to show you kind of the character of what took place too. One thing that's different between a direct action platoon in the Marine Corps and what Abram did is what you're about to read. A direct action platoon wants to do things like this without being seen, heard, or caught, or obviously caught. But they also don't want to kill anybody. They want to do it with as little damage as possible. In and out. Get the good guys and leave. But listen what happens here. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. So what we know about Abram is that he was not a pacifist. He trained his men to fight. He seems to be prepared for war. And in fact, he will do that bidding. And in fact, he slaughtered the kings of the east. He went after Keterleomer and his partners. Okay? How does this make you feel that he trained his men to fight and that he slaughtered the bad guys? Let's be honest. Does anybody have any problems with that? Huh? Right. How does it make you feel, though, that one of our guys, that really the great, great granddaddy of our faith, was a warrior that's killing people? It's surprising? Why is it surprising? Okay. 
Turn the other cheek is one verse that comes to mind. What's another verse that comes to mind, a prominent one? Okay, that's a good one, yeah. What else? Another one that comes to mind, a real prominent one. Thou shalt not kill. Okay, now we'll talk about that in a minute. I have to tell you that um, I don't know how many years ago now I went in the Marine Corps. I had a little crisis of calling when I was first... um, I was going through infantry officer school. This is about nine months into my training, initial training, and trying to sort out, can I kill somebody? <laughs> you know, I, believing on Christ, Christy and I were dating at that time. We were, man, we were enjoying the Lord, pursuing the Lord. I was reading the Word, feasting on Him, and I really had a crisis. You know, how can I do this? How can I continue on in what I believe to be my calling, what God's want, wanting me to do right now? and yet do something that seems to be out of character with so much of Scripture. I want to show you a couple things. Turn to Matthew chapter 8. As you're turning there, I'll tell you too, just share with you briefly, the commandment, thou shalt not kill, is better translated, and you'll find this in more current translations, thou shalt not murder. Killing and murdering are two different things. I want to show you a couple things here. Matthew chapter 8, verse 5. This is referring to Christ. When he entered Capernaum, a centurion came forward to him, appealing to him. Does anybody know what a centurion is? Okay. How many does he command? A hundred. Yeah. He's a warrior. This guy's a fighter. He says, Lord, my servant is lying paralyzed at home, suffering terribly. And he said to him, I will come and heal him. But the centurion replied, Lord, I'm not worthy to have you come under my roof, but only say the word and my servant will be healed. For I too am a man under authority with soldiers under me. Soldiers. And I say to you, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes, and to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard this, he marveled and said to those who followed him, Truly I tell you, with no one in Israel have I found such faith. He didn't say, man, this guy's a murderer. This guy's a killer. He's bad news. I'm not going to do anything for him. He actually praised this guy's faith and set him up as the model for faith. Turn also to Romans chapter 14. That's not what I'm wanting. 13. Romans 13, verse 1. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God. And those that exist have been instituted by God. Here, when you hear authority, hear government, police, forces, armies, Marine Corps, hear all those sort of things, those entities, bodies of the government. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval. For he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear what? The sword in vain. What do you do with a sword? You cut something. (laughs) You don't butcher. You're not a butcher. You cut something. And he says specifically, he doesn't bear the sword in vain. It's not just for show. 
that our government and the authorities bear a sword for a purpose, for He is the servant of God and avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Now, I share those couple of verses with you just as a couple that helped me through my little identity crisis of can I love, love the gospel, can I serve the Lord and kill somebody? And it, I reconciled it, I believe, through passages like that. That also, and along with the commandment rightly interpreted and realized that, yeah, we are an instrument of justice and an instrument, instrument of righteousness. There's um, some of you, I mentioned in the email that I sent out today that I was going to spend a little bit of time talking about just war. I'm not going to spend a whole lot of time there. I don't want to get into Iraq, you know, is that a just war? That wasn't the purpose of tonight. Uh, the main purpose of tonight was to really take a look at Abram and what he did, and um, maybe to see um, these sort of things through a different lens and understand them a little bit differently. Uh, just war theory was started by a guy named Cicero about 100 years before Christ. It was really developed by a guy named Augustine, about 350 to 400 or so A.D. And then another guy really refined it even more, a guy named Thomas Aquinas. Some of these guys I'm sure you've heard of at some point. The just war theory has two sets of criteria. Now, the reason I'm sharing the just war theory with you is because I want you to appreciate that apart from Cicero, who was probably kind of a philosopher, Augustine and Thomas Aquinas were believers. These are the guys that developed this just war theory from visuals just like this, realities just like this, where Abram goes and kills a bunch of the bad guys. <laughs> and it's really a foundation for how we as a country are supposed to operate in war, how we're supposed to define what is righteous war and when and where should we be involved and how. And this is, these are some of the things that they came up with. First of all, just war has two sets of criteria, or two, two criteria. The first is establishing the right to go to war. And the second is establishing right conduct within war. So the first is when is it right to go to war, and the second is how do you operate once you're in war. These also have had a part to play in the development of the Geneva Convention and things like that, how prisoners are treated and... You may not realize how much this has impacted us, but little stories like this have an impact on where we are and what we're doing. Here's a few things to go along with just cause. Here's some of the criteria within the right to go to war. A reason for going to war needs to be just and can therefore be to recapture things taken. In this case, what's the thing taken? Lot, exactly. Or punishing people who have done wrong. Okay, that's the first criteria. The second one is legitimate authority. Only duly constituted public authorities may use deadly force or wage war. You know, I say, well, um, Abram wasn't like a, I don't know that he had a police badge on, that he had a, he wasn't wearing camouflage. Who do you think the authorities were in that day? Ketaleomer and these other jokers. And Abram, considering the fact that he whipped four kings with his 300-and-something men, he was essentially a king. He was essentially an acting, operating authority on his own. The next is right intention. Force may be, be, may be used only in, true, in a truly just cause and solely for that purpose. Okay, so you can't just brutalize people just because you're at war. There's got to be a reason behind it. 
and it should be a last resort. Force may be used only after all peaceful and viable alternatives have been, has been seriously tried and exhausted. We don't have that information to know if Abram did that. We don't know if he sent like a letter to Ketterleon or, hey, man, let my, let my nephew go. But technically, for just war sort of handlings, it should be a last resort. Now, the right conduct within war. Just a couple of things to share with you. There's a distinction, distinction. Just war conduct should be governed by the principle of distinction. The acts of war should be directed toward enemy combatants and not toward non-combatants caught in circumstances they did not create. And we don't know if there were supposed innocents hurt in this little adventure, in Abram's little Ricky Recon adventure. But man, I, <laughs> this is a hard one because if you look at places like Jericho, what did they do when they went in Jericho? What were they told to do? Kill everybody. Men, women, children, everybody. So this is, you know, this doesn't necessarily reconcile with some of our Scripture. Proportionality. Just war conduct should be governed by the principle of proportionality. The force used must be proportional to the wrong endured and, the poss- and to the possible good that may come. You know, you may have been hoping that I would have some sort of reconciliation for you, how to reconcile just war and, and maybe what we're looking at right now in our situation with Iraq and things like that. I just thought it would be an appropriate time to look at, some of, at what some of our Christian um, forefathers, at least contemporary Christian forefathers, have come up with on what just, just war looks like. Um, and you might see some ingredients that they have in common with this story with Abram. Not all of them, for sure, but some of them they have in common. But Abram fights at least justly from the point of view that he's recapturing things taken, and that being Lot. He fights by night, which I'm going to say is fighting smart. He's not fighting like those jokers in the Civil War, Revolutionary War, where they're all walking out there in lines in the middle of the day and wearing red, you know? I mean, he's fighting like Ricky Recon. He defeated them, and he didn't just defeat them, he pursued them. I mean, there's a picture of tenacity here. This guy, 90-something years old, old, I mean, he's a warrior at heart. And there's, I mean, there is zeal behind his actions. He brought back all the spoils of war, including his nuisance nephew Lot and all the people. Turn to Ephesians chapter 4, verse 8. I like to look for opportunities to uh, enjoy Christ when we're studying these Old Testament stories because he shows up all over the place. And here's a picture of that. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 8. Speaking of Christ, Paul has just said, Hey, therefore, as a prisoner of the Lord, I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called. Live like you ought to. <laughs> Live worthily in light of what we've been delivered from. And he refers to this passage here in verse 8. It says, When he ascended on high, speaking of Christ, he led host a captives, a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. And this picture of Christ leading a host of captives, that's our story. You picture Abram leading little undeserving knucklehead lot out of captivity or out of whatever you want to call it, where Ketelaomer's got him. That's our story, where another, a righteous, has rescued us and liberated us, the unrighteous, the nuisance. And that's our story. You can picture Christ in this picture of Abram leading uh, Lot away from uh, Ketterleomer's 
captivity. Now, I was just thinking about this contrast with Abram from a couple chapters before. Remember a couple chapters before where he went off to Egypt and he was like the big chicken of the famine and the big scaredy cat of Egypt? This guy right here is a manly man in this chapter. I mean, he is a courageous dude right here. This is a David and Goliath story where Abram and his little 300-something men are going to go up against four kings that have already proven themselves to be quite the warriors. And by night, he goes up against these four kings. It's a David and Goliath story, and it's, another, it's just like the Gideon and the Midianites story. And it's just like God to use an old man and 300-something guys to go whip four kings. That's a theme in our Scripture. We should get acquainted with that and appreciate that. We contrast this with chapter 12 where he's the chicken of the famine and the scaredy cat of Egypt. And this contrast is like the contrast between the Peter of the crucifixion and the Peter seven weeks later of Pentecost. This the hero preaching in the very same city where his Christ was crucified where he's denying him seven weeks earlier. It's the same sort of contrast. And the difference is worship in this case. Abram's moved back home He's built an altar. He's walking with the Lord. He's enjoying the Lord. He's worshiping the Lord. That's where his courage comes from, is knowing that ultimately he's not the one fighting the battle. The Lord is fighting the battle. Genesis chapter 14, let's go back there, verse 17. After his return from the defeat of Keterleomer and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet him at the valley of Sheva, that is, the king's valley. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine, He was priest of the Most High God. And he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram by God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And Abram gave him a tenth of everything. Now we're going to talk about the king of Sodom in a moment. But I want to just visit this Melchizedek for a moment. Melchizedek, king of Salem and priest of the Most High. This is an early picture of who? Christ? Who else? Turn to Psalm Psalm 110, verse 1, the Lord says to my Lord, this is a psalm of David, says, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter, rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power in holy garments. From the womb of the morning, the dew of your youth will be yours. The Lord has sworn sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. And then also in Hebrews chapter 6, really a lot of places in Hebrews, Christ is identified as being in the order of the priest of Melchizedek. What does that mean exactly? When you think about David and you think about Christ and what we're seeing here from Melchizedek, what is he? He's two things. Priest and priest of the Most High God and obviously a benevolent king. He's likely, the king of Salem is likely referring to an early Jerusalem. Salem. Jerusalem, he's likely the king of Jerusalem. And he's coming out to meet Melchizedek or meet Abram and to bless him and to worship with him. 
What does he do specifically? Let's tease out the things that he does. Look back there at verse 18. What does Melchizedek do? He brings out bread and wine. What does that sound like? Huh? Lord's Supper, doesn't it? Man, that's an early Lord's Supper. You hear your Bible just going... You hear it all fitting together with an integrity and wholeness? Well, yeah, of course he's bringing bread and wine. What else is he going to bring? What else does he do? Okay, he blesses the God most blesses God most high. He he attribute, attributes possession of heaven and earth to God. Possession also means creation. So not only is he saying that this God most high possesses everything, but our God most high creates everything. And ultimately, what it means that word there that is used for possession slash creation it means that God is involved in the present reality. It sounds like Colossians 1.17 to me regarding Christ, that Christ is the one in whom all things are held together. He's the God most high, the possessor, the creator of everything. He's the God, the present God over the present reality. What is the present reality? He just kicked these kings behind with a little old bitty knight army trained in his backyard by an old man. He's God over the present reality, and he attributes, Melchizedek attributes this victory to God Most High. What does Abram do? Okay, he worships. You know, we don't spend a lot of time doing this from week to week where we pass those plates and we say, okay, now this is worship. And I know there's the potential for some people to think, okay, well, this is kind of my fee. You know, this is my, the cause, you know, you do it after the sermon, say, well, that's pretty good. Okay, let me write you a good check. That's pretty entertaining. That's worship. Giving back to the Lord is worship, and that's what, what Abram has done here. Right off the top, too. He didn't wait and say, well, let me kind of pay my bills and see what I got left over. I mean, it's the first, front, tenth. Here you go, God. I'm going to give it to the priest because I know that's going to be giving it to God. And that's what he does as an act of worship. And I'm just thinking, piecing this thing together. Remember remember what he's done for his little nuisance nephew, Lot. I'm just imagining the time involved, the potential to lose his life over this thing, the effort involved, the monetary expense that this venture must have been. But he's not greedy or tight-fisted thinking, man, I already spent a lot of money on this little Ricky Recon night adventure. <laughs> this will be kind of my, my payment. It's kind of a, a warrior for hire. Man, he's right off the top. Here you go, God. I'm giving it back to you. He's given out of enjoyment, appreciating that God has fought the battle and that God delivered the enemy into his hand. That should be the mindset when we give. God, you fought the battle. It's not a, it, this, this strings-attached sort of giving. It's not, oh, I've got to figure out what, if I can afford it. It's this mindset, man, I'm eager to give to the Lord because he's fought the battle for me. We give out a marvel and joy that our greatest enemy has been defeated in the cross. How could we not be generous? How could we not give the right up front, given that? I encourage you not to give because you think you ought to, but give because you're grateful and amazed. That's what our boy Abram is demonstrating right here. Verse 21, now we meet the king of Sodom again. The king of Sodom said to Abram, Give me the persons, but take the goods for yourself. 
But Abram said to the king of Sodom, I've lifted my hand to the Lord God most high, possessor of heaven and earth, that I would not take a thread or a sandal strap or anything that's yours, lest you should say, I've made Abram rich. I will take nothing but what the young men have eaten and the share of the men who went with me. Let Aner, Eshel, and Mamre take their share. So Bera, you remember, Bera was the king of Sodom. You remember Sodom was defeated. The king of Sodom and all his army were defeated out there in the bitumen pits. A bunch of his dudes fell in the bitumen pits. But it looks like by this point, by the time that Abram goes off and recaptures Lot and brings him back home, that by this point, Bera has moved back to Sodom. Okay, He's moved back after he's dealing with the aftermath of Keterleomer raiding his whole city and his whole kingdom. And then he hears that Abram has actually captured all his goods, including Lot. So he's coming out to meet Abram, and here's what he says. He doesn't say, hey man, Abram, you're the man. Great job, dude. I'm just so grateful. I'm so thankful for what you've done. He comes out, the first words out of his mouth are, give me the mobile goods. He says, give me the people. He's referring to livestock and everything alive. Give me everything that's mobile and all that other stuff that you have to tote around and all the, I guess, the coats from Shinar or whatever else might have been in the, in the mix there. You take those things. You take the stuff for yourself, but give me the people. And what's missing here clearly from this king of Sodom is gratitude. What does Abram do? He says, no thanks. Now, I, I pass. I don't want to owe you anything, joker. You're a wicked cat, and I don't want a thread or a thong that's yours, bro. Otherwise, you may have claim on me that you've made me rich, is essentially what he's saying. I don't want you to have a piece of me. So, in fact, you take all of it, except for what the men have already eaten. That'd be kind of hard to give back. (laughs) And what's due these other guys that help me out. I don't want to make a decision for what they're due. Because in reality, he could have taken that stuff. But he said, no, I'm going to be generous. I'm going to be big-hearted and open-handed. I'm not going to be greedy. And he won't even accept what's due him when it's coming from a man that's wicked. And he's not about the spoils of war. He's about selfless, God-honoring, God-trusting love for who? For who? Lot. Ah, that ought to be the gist of this whole story. We're going to end with one verse, John 15, 13. This ought to be the picture of this entire story. We can enjoy the uh, Ricky Recon picture of our boy Abram getting out there and hooking and jabbing. But this ought to be the picture that we walk away with. John 15, 13 says, Greater love hath no one than this, that someone lays down his life for his friends. Man, the more I study my Bible, the more and more I see myself in guys like Lot, in guys like Cain, in guys that are the undeserving. And the more and more I realize what Christ has done for us is this picture of what Abram did for Lot. And it just makes me worship I think it makes me humble. I've heard humility described and defined as an accurate picture of ourselves combined and coupled with a high view of God and growing higher view of God. If there's anything in you that thinks you deserve the salvation that you've been given in the work of Christ, I'm not even sure you've been given it. 
That's how important it is to recognize that you didn't deserve it. You didn't earn it. You didn't muster it. You didn't conjure it. You didn't create it. We're a bunch of lots. We're a bunch of canes. No one is righteous. No, not one. I'm working. I'll share one, one passage with you in closing. I'm trying to um, really commit it to, 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 uh, to Scripture memory. And I'm trying to memorize uh, the book of Romans. I've just finished chapter 2, and I'm moving into chapter 3, which I'm excited about. Because it's fat. I mean, it's been fat so far. But chapter 3 is just robust. And here's a passage that I cannot wait to memorize because you're going to hear it time and time again because it comes up. It's just this theme, this song that plays in my head. None is righteous, no, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery. In the way of peace they have not known. There, there is no fear of God before their eyes. The more and more I study, the more and more I'm amazed by grace. And it makes me want to worship harder. It makes me want to obey more consistently. It makes me want to read His words and abide in Him more. That's the fuel for that. It's not because I oughta. It makes me want to give more aggressively. And it's not because I oughta, it's because I want to. There's this weird combination of things when you have a, lo- a, a developing low view of yourself that's an accurate view, coupled with a high view of God that makes for just a sweet, marvelous worship. Do I have any final thoughts or questions? <clears throat> Anything? I wish the Mission Impossible thing had just been right on the mark. (laughs) Made me nervous there for a minute. Todd, I'm never giving you that job again, bro. Sorry. (laughs) That's a high-pressure job, I know. I saw you back to sweating. Let me pray. God, thank you for our time together tonight. Just pray that we uh, have a developing view of ourselves that's accurate where we see ourselves as undeserving, where we see ourselves as uh, bearing filthy rags, even if it's the best we have to offer. Lord, I pray that's in that, that we can have, uh, or that we can express true worship and marvel and wonder at grace and the cross and of your love and benevolence and mercy. Lord, I pray that it's in those resources that we will uh, respond with everything in us, that we will serve and We'll love and we will spend and we'll give and we'll work, not adding to a cross, but in response to a finished, marvelous, graceful work. Lord, I pray that we can see ourselves in lot and that we can enjoy your mercy. Lord, we are thankful for the faithfulness of Abram. We're thankful for the picture of um, courage, picture of trust. We're, we're thankful for the picture in this story of you being faithful to uh, deliver an old man and his backyard-trained army for a mighty work. Lord, we confess ourselves to be a bunch of ordinary people, backyard-trained, but willing to do your work, whatever that might be. Just pray that you'll be glorified in a bunch of ordinary, common people that are available and engaged. We love you so much, Lord. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Thanks, y'all.